Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi Events. If you haven't heard of Najahi Events before, go check them out on Instagram. They're the kind of people that not only bring the awesome Tony Robbins to towns like Dubai, but also my next guest on the show, Andy Harrington, who I'm really, really excited to have coming to join us today. Now those of you that don't know Andy, Andy has done some coaching with me and helped me go through uh, learning how to sell from stage and sell from one to one to one to many. So there's lots of stuff that Andy's done with me that's really valuable, but Before we get into all of that, cue the music, let's get on with the show. Yo, Andy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. Nice to see you on here. It's like good to have a chat with you and uh, kind of share your story a little bit and tell people more about you. Because there's kind of like this community of people that I know that know you, and then this other world of people that are like, who's this Andy Harrington guy? So for those people that are like, who's this Andy Harrington guy? Who are you? Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for welcoming me into your, uh, your place here, your home. It's beautiful. Thank I didn't even know you lived on the fronds of the <laughs> palm. I've been here so many times through uh, the Atlantis, obviously, and then I'm driving past your house almost every day and didn't even know you, you were here. So. <laughs> well, you're now welcome anytime you like. Yeah, thanks, mate. Well, I shall probably, yeah, next time we won't bother going to Atlantis, we'll, come <laughs> we'll just come and camp kids. here. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, yeah, so your question was, yeah, who am I? So, yeah, just a, a, a regular guy, really, I guess. Um, in many ways, the things I've been up to and done over the last, you know, 17 plus years, um, yeah, it's just a bit odd, really, because, you know, I think you always think of yourself as little old me, you know, and, uh, but, you know, having now had the opportunity to speak alongside some of the, the big speakers, you mentioned Tony, obviously, which I've spoken alongside uh, several times, and, uh, you know, other big names, like Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, etc., and many others. It's just, you know, I sort of pinch myself a bit and go, I'm, I'm, you know, what am I doing here? Because I'm just little old me, really. But because I, I suppose because I learned to do a skill that's um, rare, I suppose, for most people who want to do it, let alone do it really well. And because I learned to do that and because I now have been teaching it, um, it's sort of elevated me to, to rub shoulders with the greats, I suppose. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. How did you get into it in the first place? Well, if I go back far enough, then when I worked for an insurance company, Churchill, maybe your UK listeners will know who Churchill is, there was a lady uh, who took the training for Churchill Insurance because we were on the phones, you know, doing these motor insurance quotes. And she took the sales training for it. And after X number of months, I'd been on the phones and done all right. Um, it, it sort of transpired. I happened to be uh, alongside her one time and chatting about how busy she was. I said, well, look, if you're so busy, you know, if, you know, the training for the new recruits as they're always coming in because they're always recruiting all the time as they're expanding. I said, look, why don't you know, give me a go? You know, I'd love to have a go at something like that. She said, okay, thanks. I didn't think even of it. And then about X number of months later, she kind of reaches across my phone while I'm doing these uh, phone calls and presses the button. That means I will, I will no longer take the next incoming call. And I'm a bit concerned, you know, what's up? And she says, uh, you, you remember a few months ago, you said you wanted to do the training for the new recruits. Do you, do you still want to do that? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. She went, okay, very good. You're on in five minutes. <laughs> it's like, so I, if you have all these experiences where, you know, like this window of opportunity opens and everything is screaming like, no, <laughs> like I am absolutely not prepared and not ready for this. Um, but like a lot of times you just, you know, say yes 
and you know five minutes later I'm walking into the Churchill training suite I think there were it was a five either five or seven people there and I had a flip chart and a pen and that's it and an hour to fill with no content <laughs> no ideas just randomly staying so I got through it um, one of the things that happens when you're new to presenting is you fiddle with things as you probably know and one of the things I only had to fiddle with was the flip chart pen. So I kept taking the lid off and putting the lid back on. Taking the lid off and putting the lid back on. I did it like, I don't know, a lot of times I must have done. That was irritating in itself. But what, what was happening was every now and again I missed the putting it back on and got ink on my hand. Which, well, again, that wasn't the bad thing. It was when I went to the toilet afterwards and discovered I'd, as I looked in the mirror, I'd transferred most of the ink to my forehead. And I had no. this giant smudge on my forehead for... Uh, I don't know how long, actually. So, uh, yeah, that's how I began. So uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been an upward trajectory from there because I started pretty low. So there we are. Yeah, and then I, and I saw sort of Tony Robbins and stuff. I went, oh, how can I commercially do this? Um, and that's you, were, you, were you at a place when you were at Churchill then? Of just Had you kind of reached the end of your journey there in your mind? Or were you just you wanted so much more? Well, what was it for you? Is it, was it... Oh, I left there, not to immediately go into the, all that. I mean, I did, I left there originally, a friend of mine was doing uh, recruitment. Uh, it was big at the time, you know, back when recruitment was expanding, especially IT recruitment. So um, he was specialising in that. So we've been, we've been and worked for a company together and I was just another salesperson doing that. And then we both thought, oh, we can give this a go ourselves. It's not that difficult, is it really? You just need some CVs and whatever. And so, yeah, we, we started our own business uh, we, I didn't we have any money so we, I, I borrowed £10,000 from the Abbey National uh, they don't exist today Santander now isn't it yeah. um, and uh, I told them I was going to buy a car with the money of course I didn't I used it as seed capital they went to NatWest and said look I've got 10000 saved up can you lend me another 30000 on overdraft so we had 40000 to start it and that, yeah that business still operates now I sold it quite a few years ago now to my co-director um, but when I was there we'd, we'd taken that 10000 we'd, we'd generated 21 million in revenue I think approximately revenue not profit but yeah it was good it was good business and then that's when during that time that's when I sort of came across Tony Robbins events and thought you know I'm kind of bored doing this recruitment thing it's not really my thing and I got inspired from well well, could I give it a go could I do something similar in the UK Um, and that's rare that's why I got the bug I suppose that's back 2003 I think 2003 and then you were essentially in a job where you were earning decent money but you were bored mm. yeah I, mean, I owned the business um, so but yeah it was pretty much like a job but it was I suppose there's a lot of people that do that isn't it they kind of like they, they get themselves I don't say trapped but just they find themselves in a place where they're not truly truly satisfied but they're making a decent enough income or they own a business and yeah. it's like uh, it's quite a bold step for a lot of people just to go break those handcuffs off and I'm just going to go in another direction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think sometimes you get into business because you fall into it because that's just the area you happen to be in. Um, and that's what I'm recruiting. We sort of chase the money, really, because that's where the money was. But I guess I felt a bit uninspired in the end. And then, you know, if you go to a motivational mindset type Tony Robbins event, you're going to get inspired and then you think, oh gosh, this feels different. You know, this doesn't feel, this feels like something I want to do. You know, I looked at Tony Robbins and thought, you know, I want to be like him, I suppose, like a lot of people. But you don't, you don't teach people, sorry, Tony doesn't teach people how to speak from stage. What you do is a, is a, is a craft. It's a skill that you teach. So how did you learn that? Where did you go? Because Tony Robbins is an event and guess what? We've all been to them. They're fantastic. And we, you know, we learned some, some 
you know, business mastery, business skills and, you know, UPW and stuff. But how did you take that bit? How did, how did that actual part come to you? Mm. So uh, when I originally started, obviously I wasn't teaching public speaking because, well, I had only just started, so it's not, it's <laughs> not the best qualification yeah. in the world, is it? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I did the original sort of mindset stuff. So for years, uh, originally, I, I did the mindset. I started out, I, I ran a free event called Breakthrough. So a three-hour sort of preview event, free, you know. And, uh, yeah, I was doing all the wrong things, really. So I was giving away too much. Had People had a big board break experience at the end. So 300 people breaking wooden boards. I was just tired. I'm holding 300 wooden boards and people breaking through and stuff. And it was just, you know, and I was making a few sales. Well, like Bruce Lee stuff. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't really sure what I was doing, really. I was sort of just making it all up. And then um, at the end of that, at the end of the breakthrough, we sold him into another event called Fire Your Desire, which was like a... Uh, a three-day sort of weekend event, you know, with the, the fire walking and all that. So I was just basically a Tony crony. I was just basically <laughs> copying him, I suppose. That business ultimately didn't make it just because personal development is actually not that easy to make money out of because it's a soft skill, right? So it has potentially a, a, a financial amount that people are willing to pay for it as opposed to a hard, tangible business-type skill. And I hadn't learned that yet. So after that business didn't work out, I thought, okay, well, let's lick my wounds for a little bit and figure out what went wrong and what could I do instead because I still want to do the speaking thing. And I thought, well, I'm always good at speaking. Why don't I teach that instead? So that's how I sort of came back. And then sort of really, got, I just looked back at all my previous videos of stuff I've been doing because the events were great. And I thought, what's he doing up there? You know, what, what's, what's he doing, that guy up there? Can I teach that? And sort of try to work out what I was doing naturally and turn it into a system to teach others. So there wasn't somebody else that was teaching that speaking from stage stuff at all that you went and saw what they did on a stage and said, hold on a minute, I'm going to model that. I see the Tony bit you modelled, but there wasn't, was there any competition for that kind of stuff around? Oh, no, not, not really. The, the only I other... don't know anyone that does it apart from you. I'm sure there are um, others around that do it. Um, and some just do product, for example. There's always good people out there doing different things. You know, my speciality is trying to help people not is to learn how to also sell authentic in the stage but not by giving empty content by actually teaching uh, and at the same time I always think information for free implementation for fee so give them loads of information but what you sell them next is implementation of the information which most people find the most difficult so you have to find a solution for that um, the only other thing that was at the time which I did attend which is good because I was obviously learned NLP because that was the sort of bedrock of my personal development stuff um, there was a sort of trainer's training for NLP, which was a, it was actually a 17-day training course where you had to learn the skills to train NLP. So you had to teach NLP content, but at the same time, obviously, you're getting feedback on your own speaking skills. So there was a lot of that goes into also what I do today as well. There's a, there's a fair grounding of that as well. That's interesting. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. I don't know if I could do a 17-day course of anything. Oh, it was incredible. It was, like, it was horrendous. It was really tough. It was a, <laughs> was it one of the, like a residential course that you had to... Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there was one day off maybe in between. But you had to learn how... At the end of it, you had to, do, you had to teach NLP and do NLP interventions live on stage and stuff. So that's more than master practitioner, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're practitioner, master practitioner, and trainer's training, which is, in essence, the, you're now qualified to train... Track, uh, master track, etc. Well, it's all completely unregulated. Obviously, it's not really. It's just. There's, it's just. There's no rules that say you can or can't teach anything, is there? Really? No. Um, but within certain NLP societies or whatever, 
there are a few sort of unspoken rules about what the, the right etiquette is to be qualified to train people. Obviously, Tony Robbins trains people on this stuff, and he's, I think Tony ever did NLP practitioner. I don't think he passed master prep or didn't do it. But I like, you know, the thing is about NLP, I think, is like what Tony figured out quite early on is there's no differentiator. You know, if you're teaching NLP, what's different about you, the way you teach NLP from somebody else teaching NLP? And then once the market was flooded with so-called NLP trainers, there's not a lot else you can do to make and come to yours because, you know, everybody else is down the road can do it as well. So what Tony figured out is he created his own framework, his own models and his own ideas based around. And that's what we do. We teach people, how do you put together a model or framework of what you do visually so you can show people how you essentially what your recipe is? How do you get a result for them, whether that's helping people overcome a uh, let's say some kind of grieving situation. You know, what's the what's the steps of that? What's the framework? What's the what's the pathway? Mm-hmm. Uh, or it might be uh, how do you get more sales? Or how do you do social media? How do you do a podcast? There's always steps to something. And what you want to do is share that information with people in a broad sense. And if they want the the the, the you know the the, uh, the skinny on it, for example, to get right down to the implementation level, then normally they'll come either to learn that directly with you one-to-one or there could be an advanced course or ongoing mastermind or something like that. And that's what the information business is really based around, isn't it? Did you, when you started teaching people how to speak and sell from stage, you were obviously kind of like fettling out and and creating the the right type of content and made some mistakes along the way. Sure. How, how far into your journey did you, did you, of doing that, did you go, I've got this? Did you have like an aha moment or did you have like this time where you're like, you know what, I've worked on this for a while now and this is really slick? Mm. No, not really. I think I'm still figuring it all out. Uh, you know, I think you don't stop. I think that's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, there is no you've made it, whatever that is, or you figured it out. Uh, I think good entrepreneurs constantly stay on their toes and are, are, are constantly aware that things evolve and change because everything, everything, every product, every service um, every idea you have has its day. It always evolves. There's like the early adopter phase, the growth phase, and then there's a phase where it sort of matures and then eventually it starts dying, right? I mean, look at the iPhone. I mean, no one's going to buy the, the original iPhone today. It's, you know, we're from iteration number 11, aren't we? So it has to constantly innovate. So I think it's a mistake to everything, you know, oh, I've made it because then you're a dinosaur, really, because you're not going to innovate as because world changes, you know, um, technology definitely advances and changes things. So if you if you think if you think you've made it, you know, you'll think you're in trouble, really. So yeah, I constantly keep telling myself. Well, I don't even have to tell myself. I just constantly keep thinking, what's next? You know, how can we evolve it? Staying how long ago did you write your book? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Probably about four years ago now, I think maybe. Yeah, it's a Sunday Times bestseller. What's it called? Passion into Profit. And I've written a book and. It's a bit of a labour of love writing a book. Did you find it a, a, a cathartic process, or was it for you? You know, not much fun at all putting it together. How, how did you enjoy it? Yeah, it didn't take very long, actually. Oh, really? Uh, probably about thirty-six to forty hours in total of writing. But I know, because I no, I no longer like you, and I'm interested in this conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just because for years I've, I've because I'd been teaching it for so long. It was just very easy for me. It was almost like just just running one of my events. The, all I had to make sure is I structured it. Um, and what I wanted to do is make it conversational. What makes podcasts interesting to listen to, rather than the one voice only, the two voice, the uh, the ebb and flow of a conversation is what makes any uh, content pretty interesting to listen to. When it's just one voice, direct to camera, direct to mic all the time, that can be um, quite monotonous. Mm. 
but the ebb and flow of a conversation changes it. So what makes a conversation is one person asks questions, predominantly in the moment yourself, obviously, as the interviewer, and me as the interviewee, I get to answer the questions. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting because each question is almost like a problem to solve, isn't it? And human beings are problem-solving machines. We're constantly solving problems. We like to think that we want to get to a life of no problems, but that's just ridiculous. Like a life of no problems is no life at all. You know, we constantly, that's why, that's why in stories you have to introduce a problem very early on in act one of the story because that's the hook that hooks people in. So every question you ask me, it's almost like a little problem. It's a bit of uncertainty, isn't it? How is he going to answer that question? And that is, in essence, what you need to do when you write a book. You, you say something and then you ask a question sort of rhetorically of yourself of what you've just said. So you just make a statement and you say, so, so how do you do X? And then you answer that. And that might, you know, your answer to how do you do X might be two pages long. And then there's another little subheading comes up, you know, bit bolded black, which might say, so, you know, what, what, what could go wrong when you do this? And then you answer that question. So that little blacked out or darker black text of a question, that in itself, it, it resets people's brain as well, because it's a new problem to solve. And that, because if you just go on too long solving one, you know, if you, you ask a question and you go on too long without another question coming in, for example, now it's been about probably two and a half, three minutes since you asked the last question. If I ask this question for an hour, the attention span of the audience is going to go down considerably. Yeah. Because we've, we're still solving, you know, there's no new problem coming in to solve, if that makes sense. So yeah. that's what you do with a book. Keep introducing problems and solving them. And what you've got to do is think like the audience. Based on what you've just said in the book, based on what you've just written, what question would the reader have if it was a conversation? And you try to ask that question of what they're thinking in their head as the question, and then you answer it for the rest of the text. And what should happen, there should be some like, oh, it feels like he's just talking to me. Because like, that's what I was thinking. That's how you do it. <laughs> what were you like as a kid? Uh, very outgoing. A big show-off, um, loved sport, uh, played my dad consistently. My dad was a, you know, my big hero when I was growing up, so between age 0 13. My dad was my hero. You know, we'd play a lot of sport together in the garden or go out places and play cricket, football. Cricket and football, I suppose, were the two ones, probably football more than anything, a lot. Um, I played football for the school once I, once I went to Kent uh, from London I was seven years old I started playing football properly played for the school football teams played for the school district played for the county played cricket at fairly reasonable standards as well county under 19 levels as well so I really loved sport that was my stage I suppose um, but then when my parents split up when I was 13 which was a shock a real big shock my, um, my mum decided to leave me dad she met, she met somebody else and like it really felt like a, a crushing thing. I just like, I, I suppose I can't really describe it to you unless anyone's been through it, but you know, rug pulled from your feet kind of thing. Because I think what happens is you grow up with this set of beliefs about how the world is. And you're cocooned in that loving, that love environment. You're young, you're your dad with everything. Everything's just the way it is, right? And then one day it's like somebody says to you, yeah, uh, your name's not actually Spencer. Your name's actually Frank. What? Yeah. And I, or like, you know, but your mum's your mum's not your mum, by the way. Like that shocking news, if that's to happen, you suddenly discover that it's like 
then what happens is everything gets questioned. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened, like, and it was um, shocking. And I was sort of living sometime. I lived originally with my dad. After that, for a while, cause my mum moved out. Then you know that he found a new partner. And I felt a bit uncomfortable with that growing up. And then I saw I lived with my mum for a little while with her new partner. And then back with my dad. And then mum was sort of toing and froing. Eventually left. Uh, I think after just about turned sixteen. I think when I moved out. And so from that point of view, I think I had to become entrepreneurial anyway. But I, I wasn't entrepreneurial at that stage. I was just fighting, just trying to, you know, uh, get back to some kind of homeostasis kind of thing, you know. And uh, I think, like I said to you, I think I was very extroverted growing up because I had the love of my mum and dad around me. And so it allowed me to be extrovert. I could be the, the king of my castle, as it were. And I think, you know, when that shocking event happened at age 13, I think I just completely became introverted. Because oh, I spent so much time by myself after that because, you know, my dad was busy, you know, I understand now, looking backwards, right, as an, as an adult myself and having also had relationship challenges myself, I realised my dad was just trying to rebuild his life, right, yeah. and trying to, you know, figure it all out. And as a result, then, but then I, there was lots of time where I was spent on my own because my, my, my sister was, I only have one sister, she was but 16, so she's been off at that age 16 out doing what 16 year olds do. But I'm at 13, so I'm just at home on my own. My dad's around, you know, his girlfriend's house. I'm in, I'm in the house on my own, sleeping in the house on my own. Um, and uh, yeah, there's lots of times to think and review things. Sort of looking out the bedroom window, sort of thinking, oh, gosh, I've got so much love to give. I remember saying it to myself, I've got so much love to give. And that's what I'd think, I'd said to myself. It was really weird, I think back to it now. Um, and I think a lot of that introspection today still exists in me a lot and has led to this, because I think, with, not that I did it constantly at all, but I think from that age up until 30, I was just, you know, trying to find myself as the classic statement goes, which is really just trying to, just trying to figure it all out. And that's where the sort of hunger for what I do today came from, really. So that's, and I think, I think I was lucky to find sales, I think, as, as my route out, because I, I left school mixing tins of paint, because I left school with no qualification. My, my, I was good at school, but at third, age 13 to 16, it just fell apart. I didn't, my qualifications were rubbish, because half the time I didn't even attend school. And not that I was playing true, and I just told my mum I was ill, and she was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? And uh, really, it was just wanting to spend time, you know, uh, just hide, really. And there's a lot of me still does did, there was, that. Was there, did, did you have some shame around? Oh, yeah, did definitely. Did you feel shame, yeah? Yeah, because none of my friends, uh, you know, their parents, none of their parents had split up. It wasn't a thing back then, you know. We're, this, we're a very similar age. I think you were one year older than me. Yeah. And my parents got divorced when I was eight. Right. And I, I, I knew nobody else mm. from divorced parents either back then. Yeah, it was a lot of shame, yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't I have, it, I I wouldn't have thought it back then. It is sh- like, oh, I feel ashamed. No, but you know, uh, I think there is that in it. It's the embarrassment, actually. I yeah, it's probably the more the word I'd probably think about more than ashamed at the time. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the thing is, Spence, it's like it's so common, isn't it, for parents to split up? You know, these days, mm. it's not uncommon at all. Um. And it's, e- it's so easy for the parents or, or adults to, to misunderstand just how crushing that is for a child. It is. Now, ch- children would be resilient, because they are. 
and they'll they'll get through it right but not unscathed because the child will somehow pick up a coping mechanism whatever that coping mechanism is it will pick it up now it doesn't understand the child doesn't understand it's doing that but that could be anything from overeating or the wrong kinds of foods to um you know like i did you know crawling into your shell uh to uh becoming the joker of the pack for example you know there's going to be some way the child finds to cope with that um unexpressed emotion um because child has to go to school and it's like you can't be you can't be crying and shit at school mm. you know you're going to get bullied like hell mm. so you have to get through that so there's always a way you find to cope now some coping mechanisms are mild and kind of you know aren't really that much of an issue for you or anybody else some of them are kind of yeah pretty bad but you know you get through them and then what happens is they manifest later in life as something bigger typically and that's why you know that's why these folks turn up at my events now people turn up at my events because they're they they have a coping mechanism here's the issue is that the fact that my parents were up when I was 13, if I haven't dealt, if I haven't learned, and of course I've done loads of work on myself since, and of course I'm not suggesting I'm the finished article, but far from it, there's still going to be moments where whatever I have done to solve it um, isn't enough uh, because of the event I go through is so significant that it fires off an old wound, for example, right? Um, but that's what happens. People turn up to my events not because the the event of the past is the issue, you know, because that's over, isn't it? You know, the, the, what happened when I was 13 is over. What happened when you were eight is over. That's not the problem. The problem today is, is the coping mechanism. That's the problem. Because that whatever you've done to try to cope as an eight-year-old, if that mechanism still exists today and is still getting triggered today, it is that that's the problem. Your, the way you coped, the, the behavioral choices that we made then if they still manifest now in adult life, those are the things that literally either slow you down, hold you back, cause incongruency, um, cause health issues, for example. It's not the event of the past. It's the decision that you made of what to do about it mm -hmm. that's limiting. Now, of course, the power of that is that can be changed instantaneously. You can always change, go back. and We can't, we, we can't undo the past, but the past doesn't exist. All that exists is now, right? All that happens is when you think about now, you think you recreate the past as it was in your head as a construct. You represent that to yourself, represent it back into yourself. But normally the same way, right, through how you construct the past back in your head, in memories, etc. But you can, re you can redo that. You can re restructure that past in your head. And if you do it often enough, you actually, re you actually undo the past in a different way because you review it differently. You view it from a different perspective. In the same way that today, if I cross over the divide and I actually now sit in your chair and you sit in my chair, it's kind of different. Mm -hmm. We're in the same room. Mm -hmm. It's the same memory. Mm -hmm. but it's been reviewed. It's now we're looking from a different perspective, right? And it changes the environment, right? There's a world famous speed reader and he says when you read a book about something then you, you you create a reality around that story that that actually happened he said so whenever i read a book about something to make sure that i don't get sucked into that being absolutely real i then read many books around that subject right so i get a much a much uh, better understanding of the situation rather than one perspective yeah and i think that 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 
really resonates with me when I think about that because often we do exactly as you say. One thing you said though that I find really interesting here is that you're, you're talking about a coping mechanism that we created at 13 or 8 or whatever that may be. Have you ever been able to identify what that actual mechanism was for you and kind of break it down into something that, that, that resembles some form of logic so that you can then process it, break it down, compartmentalize it or whatever, and then and, and restructure it mm-hmm. in, in a logical way? Yeah, so for me, like, my coping mechanism at the time was to withdraw into my shell. So that withdraw from or to uh, pull back, that's a pattern that generically I would call being a, uh, a pleaser. So I'm a pleaser person, right? My nature is to try to please. And what that means is that the the nature of the pleaser is the person that becomes, they look for external validation in order to make themselves feel good. Because that's the bit that was missing for me, right? People who don't run the pleaser pattern have a good way to validate themselves, right? So early on in my my life, you know, until I resolved that I, I was always seeking external validation all the time because how old were you when you or, or when did you were you able to identify that that exactly what you just explained the over 30 over 30 yeah and, so and, probably between ages 30 through 33 again through going to reading books a great book to read on this subject it's called people making by virginia satir um she has a different way of framing some of these categories but it's about looking at the dynamics of families in families you know, that's what she calls people-making, because that's where people are made in a family unit. Everyone plays a role, and they all play a different role. So everyone has, like, a, a dark side, should we call it? You know, for want of a better way, this is like the Darth Vader, and everyone's got the Jedi Knights. Yeah. So <clears throat> the way I frame it is you've got archetypes and shadow selves. So I had to recognise what my shadow was. The shadow's my coping mechanism, right? And my one, originally, was to be this kind of pleaser, looking for external validation. The good side of the pleaser is the lover. So the, so the archetype, the opposite side, the good side is the lover. But the lover does something to give, right? Not out of obligation or fear, because they over the cup runneth over, right? That's what a lover is. But a pleaser isn't. A pleaser's cup is empty, and they're doing something because I want to try to get something back from you. I want, I, want, I want the thank you. Does that make sense? I want the validation. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a lot of rescuing. If you're the pleaser, one of the coping mechanisms that happens is you become a rescuer. Your goal is, you think, if I can rescue someone that's broken, then I'll val- that the validation I'll get from that is so good that then they'll, they'll truly love me. Right? And so what you end up is having codependent relationships. And that's kind of what I fell into with my, my marriage is that I, you know, someone that I met was, had been in a situation where she uh, had been abused as a youngster growing up. And so as a result of that, with court cases, etc., two big court cases at the Old Bailey, that was me being the rescuer. Now, what was good from that is, is okay, once I figured out the pattern, that was kind of you know, good to figure it out because the relationship didn't last ultimately. But what was great about being the rescuers, that's where all my hunger and my personal development because I was trying to be her coach I was trying to be her her rescuer make sense Mm -hmm. and that obviously really sharpened my skills if you like to do so 
but it wasn't it wasn't a great relationship from a love perspective because it was a different type of funky relationship from that perspective so it was good that i figured that out uh, early on um so yeah so let me get, so pleaser is one of the archetypes that big one pleaser is one of the shadow selves yeah one, yeah one of the other shadow selves is controller yeah um so if you're the controller that's one of, that's a coping mechanism you become you get in control one of the ways you solve a problem is to become strong and be be in control so it's really important you you may have learned early on in life if when things don't go right your way to solve it was to take control and that's your classic personal development right there isn't it that's your you know i i do stuff i make it happen course the downside of that is that you're not in flow you know you're just controlling all the time which limits you know you probably don't build a team or if you do they keep leaving because you keep beating them up all the time right so uh, and you know as a in a relationship for example if you control you're probably going to attract someone who's the opposite you might actually attract a pleaser so now the pleasers with the controller the pleasers trying to solve the controller's issues the controller's happy to beat down on the pleaser both people aren't happy but they're both running their patterns. So as far as the universe is concerned, this is a harmonious relationship because both people are opposites of each other. Mm -hmm. So it's harmonious from that perspective, but not harmonious in terms of love flowing, just harmonious in terms of opposites. Okay. What's interesting about this is that, that, that again, we both took a similar route because I got into sales and you got into sales. And what you said earlier about the whole pleaser, that for me really resonates because when you think about it, in sales, we get validation from others, don't we? Yeah. Okay, and we get we get those wins that happen. You know, we get those little little kind of like punch in the ceiling in the car moments when you've done a deal and stuff. Sure. Do you think Do you think that is a a by accident thing for you getting into sales, or do you think that no, I was getting into it, but living through it was by accident, or do you think you got a flavour of something that really fed you in a positive way by those little wins that you get in the beginning of your sales journey? Um, yeah, I think so. It, it's an infusion for me of, because it's kind of almost like a complete paradox because as the pleaser wanting validation, um, your classic pleaser is probably going to be too afraid to go out and make those sales calls. But because I had this 13-year love, I still had within me the ability to be the lover as well. So both were present. And so those two things together... You know, it's just the problem early on in my career with sales calls, I wasn't making enough sales calls. Like, you know, once I finally got into it, I was like, you know, I did classic kind of just, you know, choosing the clients that you think will buy from you rather than knocking everybody's door, you know. Um, So I think it's an infusion of different things that come together at different times. The universe doesn't make mistakes, you know. I don't think so. I like to believe that, um, that everything, you know, classically happens for a, a reason. And... I think everything that's led to it, it's all part of it. You know, there's, I always like to say that there's no, there's no left without a right. There's no up without a down. You know, there's always going to be an opposite there somewhere. And the opposite is there to reflect back to you in some way the other side. So if you think about a coin as a heads and tails, or one side is the positive, one side's the negative, let's say. But you can't have the coin of self-worth unless you, unless you claim both sides. So you have to claim your dark side, mm-hmm. shadow self, and you have to claim your archetype and know that both of those will exist in you at all times. But the more you strengthen your archetype as a way of um, being, as a way of kind of acting, because the archetype of whether it's going to be, in my case, the warrior, 
your lover, your jester, or your sage, they're the archetypes of the good side, uh, when you operate from those, you typically go to give. When you're on the dark side and you're the controller, you're the pleaser, you are the distractor, or you're the Mr. and Mrs. Computer living from the neck up, Mr. Logical, Mrs. Logical only, you're typically coming from a place of lack and you want something from the other person. So, you know, as I always like to say, you know, life is not just forgetting, life is also forgiving. So if we can live a life where we're giving more, not from a place of having to, but from a place of service, from a place of, you know, there's more than enough, so have it all, a place from power of, you know, I'll become more powerful the more I make you powerful, I'll be more loved the more I share love with you. But doing that without the need for something back from anybody else is the place that we all like to get to. But you're going to be challenged all the time. No life is ever positive all the time. You know, the classic, you know, feeling building yourself up because today you're feeling negative. You've just got to embrace it. You've got to embrace it, claim it, ask yourself a better question to reorientate yourself back to more of a uh, archetypal sort of response. So you're more positive in nature and you'll probably find yourself having a better life. Fascinating stuff. What do you think, guys? Interesting, yeah? <clears throat> okay. Um, you've got an event here in Dubai fairly soon. I have, yes. Tell me about the event and let our audience here understand what kind of stuff they'd learn at an event like that. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> thank, thankfully, uh, we share the same promoter uh, sponsor, Najahi. And so they have been very gracious in inviting me over to speak. Uh, I was here, I'm here now, obviously, but I, I, I did an event uh, a few weeks ago. And we've got an event coming up, I think, 15th of November, I think, yeah. Uh, it's called Passion into Profit, and it's the, I guess it's a, a melting pot of many things we've been talking about. Um, but, but from a perspective of learning and discovering how, as an individual, you can share um, you know, your story to help uh, inspire more people. If you have a business, how do I uh, create a talk that I can deliver either online or in person, one to many, that describes what you stand for, what you believe, what you do as a business, what problems you solve, such that you attract to you the kind of ideal clients that you can help. So it's very much a case of putting together like a, a few hours of, of talk or presentation that essentially becomes the front end of the business that drives new customers into you, such you can sell whatever service or product you have. Um, and that all comes from uh, really two or three major pieces. One is, what's the story? Because every business, every person, every product, every service needs a story around its creation or why it's there, so to give the audience the why. Then you need to have some kind of central framework to what you do, as in, you know, a la uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, for example. There you are, there's the framework, right? So you need a framework or recipe that makes you unique to what you do. So that gives your audience the what you do. And then there's some keynote presentation that goes around it that gives a bit of a, a flavor of the how, if that makes sense. And then ultimately, you know, at the end of that, why not make an offer to people to do business with you in some way? If indeed they are a perfect customer of you, have the problem that you can solve or want the result that you can help them to get. So that's essentially what we do. And it's, it's fun to do. Um, we've been doing it for 17 plus years now. 
Is it a one-day event, two-day event? Yeah, one-day event, yeah. So, so one-day event. Yeah, I think we start at 10, finish around 4.30, something like that. And I think it's at the, uh, probably the Dusitthani Hotel, I think. I'm sure it is. The Dusitthani Hotel. I think so. Uh, that's the last one, so I'm assuming the next one will be there, but yeah. Okay, well, we can, we can put a link on there with it. What kind of people should go to an event like that? Anyone, literally, uh, that has a business, wants to get into business, and recognises the value of um putting together a presentation that can ultimately get people to know what you do, like what you do, and buy into what you do. So it could be uh, business to business, business to consumer, or it could be just anyone who's had you know, a, a downturn in their own life and they've solved it because out of necessity and are happy to uh, come along and share that story with others to inspire them to do the same thing. Look, as, far as, as far as I'm concerned, this kind of thing is... From a sales perspective, it's helping people go out and find prospects. Yeah. If you, I mean, at the moment, there'll be people that will be running, I don't know, PPC campaigns and various uh, uh, lead generation strategies to go and find people that might be interested in their product. I mean, the real estate industry here in Dubai is a great example of that. Um, The conversion rate on leads in the real estate industry is less than 1%. Sure. And so... Then, but nobody is putting together events where they can teach product launches. Yeah, but they're not putting events together where they can teach people, you know, and add some value to people and bring that to them. And I think a, a lot of people could benefit from learning how to go about doing that. And even if that's you know putting a group of ten or twenty people in a room and teaching them about their their business and what they do and how they add value, I think this this is so important now in modern day selling because a lot of people have gone down you know you and i remember the days when it was not 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 cold cool cold cool mm. you know 25 years ago yeah and and it's not that anymore but because everybody is running you know google adwords uh, and and really trying to trying to generate leads that way i think that it's really powerful that if you learn the skill where you can tell the story of your business but really educate people the buyer has changed his behavior. The consumer doesn't want to be sold to anymore. You said uh, before we started about your mobile phone being on silent. If anyone yeah. calls it, interrupts you. Yeah. So we keep our phones on silent because we don't want to be interrupted. So when I look at that, I see it as really important for every business to learn that kind of stuff. And, and I'm shocked that, mo- that more don't. Mm. Yeah, so what you said there is powerful in that what we do is education is the draw. So what draws people to you is they're going to experience education. And the beauty of that is when, you know, whether it's 10 people sitting in front of you, 20 or 100 or 10,000, then in order for someone to effectively learn and be educated, their mind has to open. And of course, while their mind is open, if you're able to subtly at the same time be selling throughout, then they're, they're not resistant to that communication because the communication is one of giving, not trying to get a sale. So it's not ask and you shall receive, you know, as in the old mantras, you have to ask for the sale seven times. And apparently, magically on the eighth time, somebody finally either gave up or said yes. Now, it's not ask and you shall receive, it's give and you shall receive. And the giving is the giving of valuable education around the core area on which your business Um, is solving problems in so in essence you're inviting people giving great knowledge know-how and experience based on the content you have on what you do as a business owner educate whether it's for 15 minutes an hour two hours over that time you're educating the audience they're opening up to you 
you're building reciprocal value, you are demonstrating your expertise, you're giving in advance, which gives you two, three, four hours to all obviously build rapport, subtly sell. Now, whether you immediately say, right, do you want to do this, you know, here's an offer, go to the back of the room and sign up for it, or whether it's a two-step approach of, you know, sign up for this and we'll have a separate meeting about it, whether it's a one-step, two-step, three-step, whatever, then ultimately getting people to experience what you do for a longer period of time rather than being in a classic sales situation where they're immediately resistant, want to get out the sales situation as quickly as possible, which means they're resistant about your ideas and your thoughts are bouncing off. They are you know, wanting to get out of it. The opposite of that is that they're learning, growing, expanding and experiencing uh, great value they're opening up to you. And of course, you do that education on a one-to-many basis. It stands to reason you'll be more effective. Mm, I agree. I know you're busy and you've got to get off because you've got some elite training program going on at the moment here in Dubai. Yes. But thank you very much for taking this time early in the morning to come and chat with me. We'll put the link of the event uh, onto this video. But if people wanted to get hold of you, they wanted to follow you and engage with you, how can they find out about you? Yeah, it's just andyharrington.com. There's a, we've recently updated the website, so I hope it looks a little bit more modern now. So <laughs> they can go there. There is some free resources on there. Access to my YouTube channel, for example. Andy Harrington's another way, but you can access it through uh, the website or just go to YouTube, andyharrington.com, um, and all the other socials as well, I guess. So, or you can get my book from Amazon, Passion Into Profit. Okay, so you've got a bunch of ways to get hold of you. Andy, thanks for your time. Good to see you. And uh, good luck today with the rest of the event. And uh, on the 15th of November, uh, can I come and see you? Oh, absolutely. I, I demand that you do. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, there we have it, the interview with the awesome Andy Harrington. Uh, it was great to get some takeaways from what he said. Wasn't it a great interview, though? Was there loads of good stuff that I took from it. Um, I, and I've known Andy for, I think, about a couple of years now. And, and even some of the stuff that I've heard today, I hadn't heard before. So it was great picking up some snippets there. Also, finding out his background you know, as a kid and some challenges that he went through and how that then shaped his life. But also his coping mechanisms, too. So, yeah, yeah good value to be had from it. Now, now, you know that I don't like to promote other people's stories stuff and I don't definitely don't do it here on the podcast but guys I have been out and I've watched Andy perform he's coached me himself and so I know the work that he does so if you're going to be around on the 15th of November and here in Dubai you'd, you'd be Look, the worst thing you can do is spend a few hours going to an event like this and learning. The best thing you can do is take something from it. But if you don't get up and get out of the chair and get to the venue and take the time to invest um, and concentrate, then you're not going to learn anything anyway. So for all of you that listen to me that enjoy this content, I'll advise you to go and make time on the 15th of November to go and listen to what Andy's got to say. Passion for profit. There you go. Um, right, last thing before we leave. You know how much I love you to get involved in consuming the content that I have so if you want to see more episodes like this I'd like you to click over there okay but if you want to do what I love you to do which is to subscribe to my show then press the subscribe button which is there and you can see every podcast and every single time I produce a new piece of content it's going to come directly to you directly from me so go on do that and I tell you what if you want to leave me a recommendation on SoundCloud five stars it's always good and if you don't how can I talk you into it go on I know you can do it <laughs>